Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. That 71-year-old grandmother is one of two separate grandmothers that we've heard from in the last two days here who unprompted have repeated the same line, I would strangle Putin with my own hands. It's just a sense of the level of anger and hatred now that ordinary Ukrainians have for the Russian president. Anger that is reflected in a billboard I saw here in town that said in Russian, Russian occupier, go F yourself. Well, I'm certain the Ukrainian people will calm down and mellow out if a few thousand more of their children are killed and a few more of their cities are leveled, and they come to understand that the benevolent Russian occupiers only want what's in their best interests to free them from the Nazi hordes. So, uh, good plan, Vlad. Good plan, Mr. Putin. I'm sure that'll work out just fine. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show the co-host who has risen from his sickbed to his microphone, uh, Jack Armstrong. Jack, how are you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, considering how you were several hours ago, hours ago, eh, is an improvement, huh? No, I'm not. I'm not good. I'm not well. Uh, just thought I would call in before I uh, go back to bed. But got my fever. My fever's gone, so that's good. Um, that is good. So I don't know if you played the earlier part of that report about the grandma, where she uh, said, "I will shoot Russian soldiers, and my hands won't even shake," which I thought was an interesting thing for an old woman to say. Oh, yeah, we have featured Granny uh, prominently during the show today. Yep. I did, while I was laying in bed today, watch uh, Zelensky's address to Congress. Watch the whole thing. Uh, I... uh I didn't I didn't like the vibe from Nancy on that. I don't know if you how much of it you got to see, but just I have such low regard for politicians, but it just it really it really had the aura of they're trying to soak up some of his heroism and like have it reflected on them some way. I, you know, maybe I'm over reading it, but it just it sickened me. It 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 had the feel his his address was good and powerful and the video that he played was uh was something. Agreed. Um but the, the the way Nancy Pelosi introduced him, it was like she was introducing a, uh, you know, Martin Scorsese getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom. It's so exciting to have a celebrity here. That's what it seemed like to me. As right. opposed to and the, the somber the, occasion that should be a guy who might be dead by the end of the day pleading for help for his country. Right. And as I remarked, the applause and cheers and the rest of it, I just and, and they're sincere. I believe they are mostly sincere, at least. But there is a bit of a feeling of he's super brave and a hero and kind of handsome. And and we're with him. We're totally with him. We're not going to give him what he needs, but we're so with him because D.C. is just so yeah. horribly phony. It's it's tough to take. Um, I've read some of the comments from a couple of senators who've, who've come out, said, get the guy what he wants. Um, I'm going to be tracking that this hour as well. Yeah, I, 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 I liked the fact that when he was done, he, uh, he sat there for a little bit of the applause, but then he got up and left his desk. He wasn't going to do that like he, like happened in Canada yesterday where he sat there for three minutes while they are all cheer. Yeah, I got things to do. I got things to do. That's nice that you're cheering. How about you send me the stuff that I ask for or not, but, uh, I'm done with the whole, how little does being applauded matter to him at this point in his life? Only as a measure of how likely it is he gets what right. he asked for. And, like, and that's a very unreliable measure. I liked when he said, uh, I don't remember if this was the part he said in English or not. 
because most of the address was in Ukrainian with the translator, and then he some some of it was in English. But um, where he said, "I'm 45 years old. My uh, my days have stopped, along with all those other children that have died." I thought that was pretty good stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, that was incredibly powerful. We have played that. Um, what I'm, I'm looking for that situ- on the sheet. What a situation for the world. I have no idea what the right answer is. So is he? I assume he's hearing the same stuff that we're hearing from, like, Mike Lyons, that, look, those missiles aren't coming in through from planes. So uh, owning the airspace wouldn't stop that. But is he preparing for the That's future? changed, though. I've got to jump in and say that that's changed. The devastating attack on that base in the West that killed all of the trainee soldiers and, and many other people, that was a cruise missile launched from Russian aircraft. From now, Russian aircraft, aircraft in though, Russia. In Russian airspace. Yeah. That's correct. That's a yeah. good point. Yeah. So it still wouldn't have made any difference. But is he preparing for the future? That's what I wondered. And I, I wondered why has anybody brought this up? Because eventually in Syria, Russian planes were flying over Syria, dropping bombs all the time. And if he's just trying to get the war, the airspace closed down before that starts happening, because then they're really doomed. Russia starts flying planes in Ukraine over those towns and dropping bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, as I understand it, there's already been some of that, not nearly as much as anybody anticipated, and that's why everybody's confused by it, but there have been quite a few helicopter gunships and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, obviously, uh, Zelensky and his command team believe controlling the skies is incredibly important now, but as you point out, also in the future. Well, I just wonder if he's thinking ahead, because he said, did he say it today or yesterday in front of, can he said it at some point. Maybe if we'd have gotten all those sanctions in place before Putin came in, he would have thought twice about it and not come in. You know, remember when he was saying, hey, if you guys, if your intelligence says he's going to move, why not hit him with the sanctions now? What's the point of waiting? And it was that whole idea of, well, how are you going to punish him if you've already hit him with the sanctions, which never made sense to me. <laughs> you know, you back your troops away from the border and the sanctions come off. That's how that works. Seemed pretty simple. But I, I think, once again, he's trying to, how about we do these ahead of time instead of waiting until, you know, the hell happens and then deal with it. Yeah, we were just discussing that. I think it was last hour, the whole question of uh, Polish MiGs being given to the Ukrainians and that in a three to four day time Period. If you're looking at that, it was ridiculous. It was completely undoable. Problems with maintenance and pilots and pilot training and the transfers itself and and a bunch of different things. But if that three-day window becomes a three-month window and we're talking about June, well, then you can train the pilots. You can get the mechanics there. You can assemble the spare parts. And so, as I said, let's go ahead and do these things, knowing we might not end up needing them if, God forbid, Ukraine is just so reduced to rubble, there's no resistance anymore. Or, please, Lord, uh, Putin relents, declares a phony victory, and pulls his guys out. Well, then fine. We'll have gone to all that trouble for nothing. But better that than we get to June and say, damn, we should have given them those planes in March. Yeah, there was a good report yesterday on one of the newscasts I watched about how uh, how low morale is among Russian troops. I hope that's true. I hope that that's true. They're being a shot if they try to uh, if they don't move forward. So they're they're fighting out of you know saving their own skin. But it's not because they believe in their cause. That's good news. Did you see the in the last hour the news about we're considering giving them these switchblade uh, units that are like the highest tech thing on planet Earth for destroying tanks 
and uh, we haven't given them to other people, but we're looking at uh, Biden announced that they're looking at giving those to Ukraine. That, that could be a pretty powerful weapon. Yeah, I actually wasn't familiar with that until I read uh, Ben Sass suggesting that we go ahead and arm Ukraine with those things. Uh, you know, I I got I'll just throw this in so folks know that we're not completely going hog wild on the uh, you know the arm them arm them fight 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 thing. The history of American weaponry being furnished in huge numbers very quickly to various forces uh, is not a perfect one. They get into the wrong hands. They get uh, scooped up by the enemy, that sort of thing. All the time. As we saw in Afghanistan, times 100. Yeah. At some point, this war is over, and all those shoulder-fired missiles that can bring down planes are floating around somewhere. Right, and I'm some crooked commander in some country, maybe Ukraine even. And, uh, you know, I've dreamed of a dacha on the left, on the, uh, the Black Sea, and I got all these super advanced weapons in a storehouse, and I got a guy from, uh, I don't know, from wherever. Some German guy says, I got a buyer on the other end. I'll give you five million bucks for those things. Your cut's three million. What do you think? So, you know, there's, there's just to strike a note of caution, but, uh, definitely, and you've suggested this in the past, the, the air currents, the wind is definitely blowing in the direction of going further with, with weaponry uh, and, and further with sanctions. Like anybody above the rank of postman in uh, Russia is, is completely sanctioned. You know, the one thing I would have never been able to predict that would come out of this crazy time we're living through right now is that the Congress would decide to get together and, you know what, let's finally deal with the whole time change thing. You know, that's, <laughs> let, let's, let's, let's put that on the table. Isn't that something? <laughs> at the, at the so same hilarious. time, though, at the same time, though, because the Senate passed, let's quit changing times, it's stupid. Which 30 is seconds just... of debate and voting. No kidding, because everybody agrees. Now, yeah. whether we should stick with daylight saving time or standard time is actually a really interesting question, which we won't get bogged in down on now. But so if, if Congress passes it and, and the poor old man uh, in the White House signs it, then that's the law of the land all of a sudden. And I would hate to miss this opportunity just because there was a world war starting. Right, right. But just how odd in the news cycle. Yeah. Okay, cool. Marco Rubio yeah, finally gets it done. That's to explain. Is that what he's going to run for president on? I'm the guy that got the rid of the stupid time change that nobody liked. He's got my vote. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to go lay back down. I'm all of a sudden very, very, very sweaty. Do you have any idea what you've got? No, no. It's the same thing Henry had, and he went to the doctor three times, and they never nailed down what he had. Yeah. All right. Well, go rest. Rest is important. Liquids, fluids, et cetera. Keep my feet all up. All right. All right. Uh, we'll be back with much more. Let me, I'm scanning. Oh, you know what I promised a long time ago, and we've got to get to? As the Ukrainians are fighting tooth and nail for their country in the street, a young techie describing the state of his industry and his coworkers. Oh, my. Don't miss it. Coming up. That's right, spring break is here, but I read that due to inflation, everything from flights to hotels to food is more expensive. 
Instead of yelling, we're going to Daytona Beach, kids are going, we're going to Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> yeah, this year, instead of a round of shots, you buy one shot and everyone takes a little sip. <laughs> ah, some fine humor for the youngsters there from Jimmy Fallon. I don't know, I haven't heard from Joe from Dayton for a while via the uh, the email, mailbag at armstrongandgetty.com. I hope he's doing well. Uh, shout out. Uh, <clears throat> so speaking of young people and that sort of thing, uh, the situation in Ukraine has eclipsed a lot of topics. We might be talking about stories that are broken, and uh, I'm hanging on to them. We'll squeeze them in as we can. Uh, but uh, your culture war type stuff and uh, the outsized influence that big tech has on the way the world works and who gets heard who gets silenced who gets deplatformed who gets their credit card contributions processed and who's shut out because they're too evil and <clears throat> the nature of big tech and the people that work there matters and i came across this tech string this is a tech guy with a huge following um and he i'm sorry it's actually on twitter but uh very very interesting and 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 i think you'll find it interesting too he says i work in big tech a name you would know and have probably used before. Wanted to give a rundown of what it's like from the inside right now. Obviously, insanely radically left-wing, BLM, LGBTQ, trans flags hanging in the office, pronouns stated before meetings, special affiliation groups for everyone but white men, about what you'd expect. But COVID and WFH has totally broken people. Let's work from home. They are fundamentally weak, often with no social support outside of work. They're the people with no children, no spouse, only a dog or cat for emotional support. There's constant talk even now about how hard things are for everyone. And just as a quick aside, it was, you know, as a guy who follows the Ukraine situation all day, the, the idea that these people who've, who've self-selected a lot of these behaviors, like never seeing friends or whatever, and are talking about how hard their lives are. It's just, uh, I just want to slap my forehead and then theirs. Anyway. Often meetings start with going around the room to ask, how is everyone feeling? Literally everyone else went on sad rants about their lives. I'm so mad a white supremacist shot three black men in Kenosha, that sort of thing. It's toxic. When it got to me, I said, I'm good. And then a lady engineer literally proposed that we should not be allowed to answer the question positively. I S you not. I think it hurt her that I wasn't as miserable as she is. She made some argument about vulnerability. These people not only want you weak, they want you to expose your vulnerabilities to them so they can exploit them. They may not intend this explicitly, but whatever twisted ideology they worship ends up with this result. So back to morale. Everyone is demoralized. This may surprise you since big tech is extremely well paid and has been able to work from home throughout the past two years. They've been given extra days off, extra stipends, bonuses, etc. They never had to fear being laid off. I have some sympathy and can feel some of this myself. It's normal and natural to work with pers people in person. Work from home can make it easy to ev overwork. You take fewer breaks, often work past normal working hours. You don't feel connected to customers or celebrate successes in person. And as I mentioned, big tech is often the only social life for people. I fortunately never made it mine, but my company had all sorts of after-work activities, sports leagues, game nights, etc. There was a rhythm and connectedness that's gone. The great resignation is real. Many employees are leaving for better jobs. Remote work has so far resulted in more job opportunities for those working in big tech, especially outside of Silicon Valley. And so we backfill those positions or hire new people all remote. 
We now have employees who have nearly two years of tenure who have never met another employee in person, let alone in some city away from where the, where the office was. This would be fine for a normal person, but again, we're attracting the family-less urbanites scared of even meeting up with their friends at a restaurant. The churn in jobs also has the major effect of constantly dealing with the overhead of reassigning projects from people leaving and onboarding new people. The new employees don't get enough attention to succeed. And the employees that stay put end up with a load of work dumped by former coworkers, plus the responsibility of onboarding the new ones. There are many software engineers who've not written a single line of code in the past years. While the woke agitation is slowed due to the productive employee's ability to simply log off, in addition to the tiredness of the agitators, there's more and more open rebellion regarding pay and profits. Uh, and then he, then he talks about how it's always been a place to air the grievances and everybody constantly does and, and only left wing feelings are allowed. He makes that very clear. But he says the feeling of distance an online only presence creates has made people braver in speaking their thoughts. You used to have to have balls to knock on the CEO's office door or schedule a meeting. Now you can fire off a nasty Slack message straight to them. People will openly write threads and comments throughout Slack, bad-mouthing the higher-ups at the company, and they do nothing. It's unreal what people will write with no recourse. If it were anything remotely right-wing, I'm sure they'd be fired immediately. But as long as they're sufficiently left-wing or minority, uh, they can agitate, complain, do no work, and continue employment. And so the entire company has devolved. And it goes on uh, at at some length uh, on that theme. The idea that big tech should be not only a player, a major player, in how our culture and our society are evolving, but heck, they're like the player. They're the arbiter of what's good and what's bad. And folks, that's nuts. And so are they. Armstrong and The Armstrong and Getty Show. A word about our colleagues Pierre, Sasha, and Ben Hall tonight. The loss and pain we feel is enormous, but if ever there were a time that the world needed journalists, reporters risking their lives to tell these stories, to tell the truth, it's now. Without a free press, the autocrats win. We will redouble our efforts to honor these colleagues and all reporters in harm's way tonight. Jennifer Griffin, live at the Pentagon. Uh, your feelings are our feelings uh, tonight. Jennifer, thank you. Jennifer Griffin, I love Jen. Um, talking about the deaths of several of her colleagues and the terrible injury to Benjamin Hall, who we hope is uh, going to survive. Uh, interesting. Uh, it's funny. Uh, that clip affects me on a couple of different ways. Uh, number one, she's absolutely right about the role of the free pat- press in any society in any place uh, and especially a war zone and especially a horrific war of aggression like this one um at the same time it's interesting isn't it how many 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 people can die um and we can take it in stride but when it's one of ours somebody we know somebody whose smile we recognize somebody whose embrace we've felt ourselves uh, when they die, uh, it affects people, including, you know, experienced hardened war correspondents very, very powerfully in a way that those other people dying didn't. And I understand psychologically why that is. I'm not criticizing it at all. Um, we can't take on the weight of the world and the grief of the world every day as human beings. It would kill us. It would crush us. 
Um, but it is interesting to remember that that grief is uh, the grief, that intensity of grief is the grief felt by every Ukrainian family as their family members have been killed, maimed. Little children snuffed before they could live their lives, as Vladimir Zelensky put it uh, in his speech before uh, Congress. Uh, just, just powerful stuff. Anyway, uh, Jim Griffin's report, by the way, that was the end of it. I want to share with you uh, closer to the beginning where she was talking about the TV editor in Moscow who so bravely held up that anti-war protest uh Banner during a newscast. 40, please, Michael. A Russian television editor, Marina Avsenikova, who interrupted a live news broadcast to protest the invasion of Ukraine on state TV, has been released from Russian custody. She spoke to reporters on the court steps. The interrogation lasted for more than 14 hours. I was not allowed to contact my relatives or provided with any juridical help. Many feared the worst for this brave Russian journalist since the Russian parliament passed a law targeting those who contradict the Kremlin version of the war in Ukraine with 15 years in prison. I think the uh, first headline clearly is that they let her go. Not only that, but she was speaking to reporters on the steps of the courthouse. I would have lost uh, my last dollar making that bet. And I'm curious what that means. The uh, The second headline from that clip, obviously, is that the word juridical exists. Who knew? Anyway, uh, Tom Friedman of the New York Times, who is, it's, oh man, it, uh, for my relationship with Tom Friedman is an interesting one. Not my personal relationship, I don't have one, but um, as a reader, <clears throat> he's written some brilliant stuff about foreign policy. Uh, it's absolutely some of the best stuff I've ever read. He also has written some self-indulgent crap, and he's almost always wrong about domestic uh, politics. I mean, just he's a elite of the elite Manhattan intellectual thinker type. But often he turns his eye to international relations, and his stuff is good. He has some comments on the release of that Russian newswoman that I wanted you to hear. Clip 45, Michael. The courage uh, is the Russian uh, uh, woman journalist who who went on the evening news, basically, like someone who stood behind Walter Cronkite during the Vietnam War, that, yeah, that that, uh, this war is all a lie. She was immediately arrested. We thought we'd never see her again. And she was just fined and then let go. And you know what? I think that's a huge sign of weakness. If that remains the case by Putin, because I think he was terrified she would become an international martyr and an example for other journalists. Hmm. Hmm. That's an explanation of why he let her go. I'm not sure I'm buying it, but I don't have an alternate one. Knowing Putin's act and and the state of Russian society and the Russian press at this point, I got nothing to offer you uh, except, hmm, we'll follow that one. Uh, the the real headline of the day, of course, is that Volodymyr Zelensky addressed the United States Congress eloquent, eloquently and persuasively, and we will hit you with some highlights from that in just a moment or two and uh, track some of the reaction uh, among U.S. government types uh, in real time in just a moment or two. But first, if we might bring you a quick word from our friends and beloved sponsors, Simply Safe Home Security, recently declared by U.S. News, PC Magazine, and Popular Science, calling Simply Safe Home Security the best home security. The best system you can get. Now, why is that? Uh, 
technically, it's every bit the equal as the f- systems you're familiar with, where a guy comes to your home and drills a bunch of holes, and there's wires all over your house and sensors, and then a complex keypad where you see uh, error in zone 313-4, and you say, honey, what's 313-4? And she says, I don't have the slightest idea, and you turn it off, and you never turn it on again. Uh, it's technically better than those. Plus, you can customize it to your home. It's backed by the best 24-7 professional monitoring in the business. Has wireless outdoor cameras that will let you know if anybody approaches your front door. It's just great, and there's no long-term contract. You can even try it for 60 days risk-free to see if you like it. Customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafecom slash Armstrong. Go today, claim a free indoor security camera, plus 20% off with interactive monitoring. Go to simplysafecom slash Armstrong. Again, that is simplysafecom slash Armstrong. So getting back to Vladimir Zelensky, his speech before Congress was uh, eloquent. It was persuasive. It was interesting in a lot of ways. He started out uh, through an interpreter um, and uh, and spoke for something like 11 minutes. Then he showed a video of the uh, terrible, terrible devastation of these beautiful Ukrainian cities, these very old, these ancient, these historic cities full of apartment buildings and children playing in playgrounds and the rest of it just brought to bloody rubble by the Russian onslaught, and then he addressed uh, the United States, particularly Joe Biden and his uh, advisors in English. Um, I found the beginning of the speech uh, quite interesting. This is through the translator, but he really sought to meet Americans where we are, our our beliefs about our country, our memories, uh, the the times of of sorrow and difficulty for the United States. Uh, Clip number 70, please, Michael. We need you right now. Remember Pearl Harbor. Terrible morning of December 7, 1941, when your sky was black from the planes attacking you. Just remember it. Remember September the 11th. A terrible day in 2001, when evil tried to turn your cities, independent territories, in battlefields. When Innocent people were attacked, attacked from air. Yes, we need you right now. Remember Pearl Harbor. Terrible morning of December 7, 1941, when your sky was black from the planes attacking you. Just remember it. Remember September the 11th, a terrible day in 20. 2001, when evil tried to turn your cities, independent territories, in battlefields, when innocent people were attacked, attacked from air. Yes. So Zelensky saw uh, cited American history and um, and and tried to relate it to the onslaught, the blackened skies they're seeing right now. I thought it was very effective and interesting. And then he addressed the president again in English, saying, look, you're the leader of the free world. You're a leader of free nations. If you want to keep nations free, here's the front. Here's where the fight is right now. Get us our airplanes. Get us our weapons. Get us our no-fly zone. Um, the latter is is highly unlikely, the no-fly zone. Uh, but uh, quoting the New York Times now, after the Ukrainian leader's video addressed to lawmakers, President Biden is expected to approve $800 million in new military aid. Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian forces launched a counteroffensive as ceasefire talks between Kiev and Moscow continued. Uh, those, those ceasefire talks, please. What a joke. 
Um, I mean, it's not a funny joke, but it's just it's uh, government's going through the motions so they could say, look, we tried peace talks. All right. Um, So that eight hundred million dollars appears to be the response. There is a push among some senators, including Ben Sass, who we admire a great deal around here for these switchblade anti-tank weapons, which are uh, serious stuff indeed. Uh, Not clear whether that's going to happen. I expect the next 12 to 24 hours to be really interesting in terms of the NATO response. Um, Zelensky, you know, standing up and making an eloquent speech is not going to change the mathematics of the thing, not going to change the calculus much. But let's face it, the way democracies work is... Public will is, it gets a vote. Uh, emotion does get a vote. Um, you don't want emotion to overcome logic, but sometimes uh, the emotional part of your, your brain has to be engaged to help you fully realize what you're looking at and what needs to be done about it. We've all known people who are so coldly rational, they're out of touch with reality. Um, at the same time, to, to, to thump your chest and demand all-out war against Putin, uh, nuclear war be damned, is, um, well, it's very easy to say, very difficult to execute. And so we do need to move fairly uh, fairly uh, swiftly, obviously. The Ukrainians are fighting for their lives, but it's got to be sober, too. And I wish I could tell you exactly what ought to happen. I really wish I did, but I don't know. Um, I like uh, this stuff, talking about the Ukrainian people and the fight and whether they're liable to give up at all. Uh, this is Ivan Watson, who we've heard from a couple of times today. Uh, clip number 34, Michael. When I ask people around the city, are you going to leave? They look at me not even comprehending the question. That's the level of commitment to staying here. Uh, some men saying, okay, I'll send my, my wife and children away. We have that plan if that day comes, but I'm not going anywhere. As for the elderly generation, they say, this is our land. They just repeat this over and over and over again. This is our land. The Russians came here. They came into our country. We are going to stay here. This is our home. Uh, and that is this kind of wall of, I don't know, public opinion that Russia will collide against even if it manages some kind of a military defeat uh, in the time ahead. I'm reminded of Napoleon's famous saying that uh, morale is to material as three is to one. And anybody who has any sense of military history or any common sense, honestly, understands that fighting for your home is a whole different thing than any other sort of fight. Meanwhile, in Russia, what's happening there? What's the Russian will, the the Russian people, the Russian uh, armed forces? Uh, I want to be aware of public, uh, of uh, uh, wishful thinking, rather. Um, But here's Phil Black on CNN. Uh, Let's start with 36. Russian munitions are still having a devastating impact on civilians in key cities. But Russian forces are still making little progress, advancing across Ukrainian territory. The core U.S. assessment hasn't changed for much of the war. The Kremlin's forces remain stalled in many areas. And experts agree, almost three weeks in, Russia is in trouble. Let's roll in 37, Michael. Roll on. Experts believe Russia's failure to secure a quick definitive win has revealed another major flaw in its planning. Russia's out of available uh, combat forces to put into this fight. Analysts say Russia's limited forces are now divided between taking territory and laying siege to major cities, reducing their ability to do both tasks effectively. 
And that means Russia must be reassessing what victory looks like. And then he made a, made a further point that um, it could be the slow grinding Russian effort may actually decimate Ukraine and its people even worse than a quick victory would. And I, I see his point. But, you know, if I'm hoping for something, if I'm wishing and praying for one thing, it would be a mid-level Russian officer announcing he's laying down his arms and, and surrendering his troops or telling his troops, I think we should all surrender. This is an evil war. And a significant number of Russians throwing their hands up and saying, I'm not fighting this anymore. And that word spreading among the Russian forces. It's unlikely, but if you're the praying sort, maybe pray for that. It might make a difference. More to come. The current spike in gas prices is largely the fault of Vladimir Putin. So I just had the pleasure of joining a White House briefing. To help sell that point with younger voters, the White House brought in young TikTok influencers, with one delivering a message to her more than 10 million followers. Russia is one of the top three producers of oil, and it is actually their number one revenue source. Now, with Putin starting this horrific fight between Ukraine and Russia, nobody wants to work with him and do international trade. Thank you for that update, young TikToker. In fact, here's somebody by the name of Ellie Zeller. I think I remember her from the report last night. Uh, go ahead and roll it, Michael, 26. I had the opportunity to ask the White House why gas down the street is $7, and here's what they said. Russia is one of the top three producers of oil, and it is actually their number one revenue source. Now, with Putin starting this horrific fight between Ukraine and Russia, nobody wants to work with him and do international okay. trade. All right, it's so the same gal from the report. Uh, so this, this uh, chick, in case you're not familiar with her, and I'm sure you're not, is uh, her, her from the neck up, she looks like a Disney princess. Ridiculously, you know, beautiful, symmetric, big uh, cartoon eyes and the rest of it. Then from the neck down, she looks like a, a Victoria's, uh, Victoria's Secret model. And so, uh, yeah, and so she's become very wealthy, telling uh, adolescent girls and teenagers how to look just like her by buying the right makeup and that sort of thing. I have no idea, you know, the full extent of her act, but that's uh, that's who the White House is enlisting to sell the idea that it's not their fault that uh, gas prices are up. It is uh, the evil Vlad Putin's fault. And... I suppose 16-year-old girls needing makeup hints will be convinced by that reasoning and uh, and indeed may vote for, well, I was going to say Joe Biden, but Joe Biden's not running. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe it'll help in the midterms a little, but I kind of doubt it. Gas thieves in L.A. stole more than 30 grand worth of diesel, if you didn't hear about that, drilled into some giant tank, so you'll probably see a bit more of that. Oh, oh you know, speaking of underwear models, because this uh, gal's built like one, I was just reading this. I had no idea of this. And yes, next hour we will get back to the Ukraine situation. Ukraine has launched a counterattack against Russian forces. It appears to be paying some dividends. If you don't get next hour, maybe your station doesn't carry it or you got to go to work or what have you, you can grab it later via podcast, either at armstrongandgetty.com. It's Armstrong and Getty on Demand or wherever you like to download podcasts. It'll be hour four from today's date. Anyway, last year... And I'm quoting now from the City Journal. Uh, undergarment retailer Victoria's Secret 
Did I say undergarment? Yes, I did. Okay. Was in crisis. Sales were down. Stores were closing. And activists, having accused the company of everything from transphobia to deforestation, had badly damaged the brand. Executives huddled together and designed an ambitious turnaround plan. They would spin off the company into a separate entity, denounce previous leadership as racist and misogynistic, and adopt a new marketing strategy that would focus on, quote, diversity, equity, and inclusion instead of physical beauty. The change of the company was significant. All the men on the board of directors, with the exception of the CEO, were replaced by women. The Victoria's Secret Angels, women like Heidi Klum, Giselle Bunchin, and Tyra Banks, were fired. A new group of women called the VS Collective was in. The new models were chosen on political grounds, not aesthetic grounds, looks, body, etc. The group included the soccer player and LGBTQIA plus minus RBQ. LGBTQ two Megan Rapinoe, plus size model and body advocate, Paloma Alcelser, whatever that means, and transgender swimsuit model Valentina Sampaio, who was born a biological male. Executives crafted a narrative of explicit political activism. They pointed to changing the world and expand the company's product lines to include up to quintuple XL sizes. That's that's five X's. And Sempaio pledged to use her new position to, quote, raise our vibration and catalyze positive change. You know what? That's funny. I had a note to myself to raise my vibration today, and I've completely forgotten. Uh, more on that story if we can get to it. Updates from Ukraine next hour. It's the Armstrong and Getty Show. Thanks for listening. Armstrong and Getty.